0: Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. Our guest for today is Anton Root, the head of research at Allied Crowds, a data and technology firm focusing on alternative finance in emerging markets. Today, we're going to talk about the report they published earlier this year, Nature-Based Solutions in Carbon Offsetting, and the report has actually a focus on Southeast Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Anton.
1: Thank you, Sandra. Thanks for having me.
0: Can we begin by demystifying for our audience the two terms which are really critical? One is REDD+, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And the other, of course, voluntary carbon markets.
1: Sure, happy to. Maybe I'll start with the second one first. So voluntary carbon markets refer to uh, essentially a, a practice where companies usually or individuals or uh, organizations, governments, anyone really, can purchase carbon credits or carbon offsets uh, from projects that are essentially having a positive impact on on the climate. So uh, the key, there is that this is the voluntary carbon market. This is not the compliance or the regulatory space that you see in uh, some countries or jurisdictions uh, popping up. So this is all um, essentially companies and, well, usually companies, individuals uh, making the voluntary decision to say, you know, we know that our actions have a negative impact on the environment. Uh, we'd like to do something about it. And the thing that we're going to do is essentially offset our emissions with projects that are having a positive impact on the environment. REDD+, so reducing emissions uh, from deforestation and forest degradation, uh, that's Red. Red plus it's a, essentially a subset of the voluntary carbon market. Um, these are projects that only focus on uh, forestry and land use types of projects. So essentially this is, in simple terms, uh, using the carbon offsetting model as a way to encourage project developers to either plant new trees or not cut down existing trees that they have. So essentially giving them uh, an incentive to better manage their forest and Essentially, ensure that the forests are there and standing, and will be there for a long time, and will not be cutting them down or planting planting new ones on land that's currently being used for something something else, for example.
0: Great. Uh, so, it is Red Plus is subset of the voluntary carbon markets overall, and it seems that Indonesia is the home to the largest uh, number of forestry and land use projects, at least in Southeast Asia. And that, of course, sounds logical. But what is going to be of interest to our audience is that. If you can explain to them, you know, a little more details about the typical projects. You know, who are the sponsors? You know, what are the activities? What's a typical project cost? And what's the time frame for implementation? Thanks.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it really depends on the type of project that you're looking at. Well, in many cases, project developers are essentially entities that are formed specifically uh, for the management of a Red Plus project. So, usually, a few entities will come together. They'll say, we have this either conservation area that we'd like to uh, ensure that we're protecting, or we have a forest that's, um, you know, bordering a national park, for example. And we'd like to make sure that this, this continues to, this forest doesn't come down anytime soon and is, well, hopefully ever really. And the entities will come together. Oftentimes, they'll uh, create a company specifically for the purpose of the carbon project. Usually, the entities will involve third-party, I guess, uh, carbon offsetting developers. So these can be individuals or uh, groups of individuals that have managed other projects in the past. So they they kind of know what they're what they're doing. It will also involve folks from any kind of local, uh, well, for example, a conservation group that's active in the region, they might come and uh, join this this consortium. Sometimes we have local governments. Sometimes there are uh, representatives from uh, indigenous groups that are, you know, that live on the land or that help to manage the land. So it ends up being actually quite a diverse cast of uh, individuals and, and uh, groups that are involved in, in setting up a project. But really, the the two key entities I would say in my research uh, that I've come across have been uh, entities that are responsible for the carbon component, and then the entities that are responsible for actually uh, managing and carrying out the project. So the way to think about that is the folks that are managing the projects will be the individuals and the companies and the groups that are actually responsible for maintaining the land and, you know, ensuring that I uh, well, Obviously monitoring it, hiring firefighters, all of that sort of stuff. So making sure that the project is actually doing what it's meant to be doing. And then the carbon component is the actual accounting for, for the voluntary carbon market. So basically thinking about how many tons of carbon is this forest absorbing? And how does that compare against various baselines? What are things like leakage? So, for example, you know, what's the average rate of forest fires in the region, and legal logging, and things like that, which may affect the project's you know long-term health. So, there's someone who, or there's typically an entity or a group of individuals that are involved in essentially helping to figure and uh, to figure that out and manage the process uh, when it comes to uh, working with the certification bodies that will come, and we'll uh, have auditors come and report the activity that's that's happening on the project. So, yeah, so th- those will be typically the, the two groups, and um, sometimes the project kind of managers and the carbon managers will be quite uh, working in in harmony. Uh, other times you know, it's almost like the carbon developer uh, or the carbon component manager will be quite separate from the actual project activity. And their expertise is really uh, around helping to helping projects to be to get registered and to make sure that they're able to pass any sort of audits and things like that. Uh, So yeah, it it really depends on the expertise of the of the people behind behind the projects and what they're doing. Now, in terms of the Typical types of projects. So again, this is quite it really varies by the various methodologies. So within each project type, there are multiple methodologies. So one might be, you know, something around protecting peatland in, in coastal regions. Some will be around uh, helping to regrow mangroves. Others will be more around basically incentivizing smallholder farmers to plant trees and you know, kind of long term crops rather than something, well, essentially cash crops that they can sell at a profit. And other methodologies will be more focused on it, making sure that existing forests are not cut down and providing an incentive for the landowners to ensure that they're not selling the land to palm um, oil farmers or things like that. So there is really no typical type of type of project unfortunately and of course where you are depends quite a bit on what types of projects are available to you so you know if you're not uh, in a coastal region so you're not going to be you know regrowing mangroves or something like that so it it really depends on the type of project where you are what entities or what registries are active in your in your region
0: I mean, what is fascinating about the way you described this, Antonio, is the, is the collaboration are, are the various types of organizations coming together. And you mentioned, you know, indigenous organizations, conservation organizations, and you mentioned often governments are a part of, of these projects. Is it kind of fair to say that, you know, for somebody like me who does not know much about these projects, that the, typically the company is the carbon entity? Uh, And the, and the actual project implementation is the conservation nonprofit is would that type of, uh, would that be typically right or perhaps not right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's typically, that's typically right. Again, it kind of depends on the the various types of projects you're looking at. But yeah, oftentimes um, they'll work together. Of course, as I was saying, there's usually one part of the consortium that's focused more on liaising with the various carbon entities and the registries and the auditors or the verifiers that come and ensure that the project activities are going on. Uh, and then there's another side there, which is, um, you know, working with the indigenous communities and you know, essentially actually implementing the project in terms of whether it's planting the seeds or, uh, you know, monitoring forest health, uh, things like that. So that that's typically the, uh, those are typically the two sides of the, of the, of the equation, I guess.
0: So one thing I wanted to also ask you is that, you know, you talked about the types of activities, you know, growing mangroves to in the coastal areas, to growing, you know, agroforestry for smallholder farmers. You know, obviously these are long-term projects, so, so you, could you just tell us a little bit about the time frame of these projects?
1: Yeah, typically projects tend to have a lifetime of about 25 to 30 years, and they will have sort of carbon certification periods that correspond with that. So effectively, this, this means that over the next 30 or so years, a forest or, or land will be generating carbon credits according to a schedule that uh, initially kind of forecast at the very start of the project. And then uh, either every year or every couple of years, entities come and verify that the activities that the project is meant to be doing are actually... Happening and the project is doing what they're what they're saying through, uh, or what they said they would be doing, and uh, there haven't been you know major negative impacts. For example, um, you know large forest fires or tree blight or something like that, which could obviously affect the project's carbon uh, stocks. So you have some projects that are shorter, so more like ten to fifteen years. Others are you know, more like sixty years. But I would say on, on average. If you're looking at a carbon, uh, forest and land use, uh, forestry and land use carbon offsetting project, those tend to be, again, roughly, I would say on average, about 30 years.
0: Thank you, this is great. And so we can now move to the, talking about the two countries that are really profiled in that report. And we'll start with the, uh, Indonesia because uh, the market in Indonesia is uh, largest, and, but it's still about, just slightly above 20 million which is not a very large number, but any stretch of the nation. So my question to you is, how do you see the growth of this market in Indonesia and in generally in the ASEAN region?
1: Sure, yeah. So I would say over the past uh, year, and really, I mean, uh, this market is moving very quickly. Well, there's a lot more demand now uh, for voluntary carbon offsets than there has been, I think for maybe the last uh, five to 10 years. Uh, well, I would say the vast majority of that is driven by companies who are making net zero pledges and uh, pledges to be carbon neutral. And that's really being driven by consumers saying, you know, we don't want to be buying goods or services from companies that have a negative impact on the environment. And uh, it's a great way for companies to signal that, you know, they would like to have a positive impact on the environment. And by purchasing carbon offsets, uh, what they're doing is saying, okay, well, we know that we have a negative impact on the environment. Some of these, uh, usually with the companies will say, you know, some of these things we, we will try to mitigate, uh, what we can't mitigate, we will offset moment and in the longer term look to you know essentially phase out if, if we can. So really the, the growth in the voluntary carbon market over the past year or so has been due to More and more companies uh, coming out and saying, we need to be more sustainable. We need to really think about how do we lower our negative impact on the environment. Uh, That's turn-driven the demand for carbon offsetting projects. There's a lot of interest now in forestry and land use projects. Um, I think that's for a couple of different reasons, but primarily it has to do with the fact that it's, it's an easy thing for people to understand, right? Uh, or if you're, if you're a company, the, it's easy for you to say, you know, we have, we're emitting whatever 10,000 tons of carbon per year. uh, And the way we're going to uh, mitigate that is by planting trees that will remove uh, 10,000 tons of carbon from the atmosphere per year. You know, that's a really easy thing for people to understand. I think that's one of the key things that appeals to companies uh, when it comes to forestry and, and land use projects. And it's, you know, these are these tend to be quite uh, visually appealing projects. Uh, some of the biggest ones in Indonesia, for example, one of the biggest ones in Indonesia, they're also an orangutan sanctuary. So there's a lot of benefit in addition to actually saving the forest and keeping the, uh, well, keeping the forest standing. Uh, there are additional benefits for uh, the existing ecosystems and promoting biodiversity and things like that. So. That's really driving the market, uh, not just in Indonesia and not just in Southeast Asia, but really, really everywhere. I think the prospects are, are quite good. There are certain things that worry me about this market, and I think um, I'm happy to, to talk about those as well. But for the most part, at the moment, the, the trends are all quite positive.
0: Well, before you get to what is worrying you, uh, let's talk a little bit about Vietnam. Uh, you also did uh, did a country profile on Vietnam, so maybe do you want to tell us a little bit of how that market differs from Indonesia?
1: Sure. Yeah. But the big difference is there are just fewer projects there, and one of the things we mentioned in the report are the various policies that the government is looking to implement in order to drive more activity, incentivizing landowners to, to uh, some of these issues and think about, you know, how do they manage land in a more sustainable way, which you know, quite naturally, I think, fits with, with uh, voluntary carbon and various forestry and land use projects. Really, when it comes to on an international or a government level, there's a lot of that's going on, well, especially now in advance of, of COP, around, you know, what are governments doing to promote the space and What's the coordination among various governments going to be? I think in Vietnam, they're doing a good job of looking to incentivize some of these you know, types of projects. Uh, so, uh, even though in, in Vietnam specifically, they're kind of um, looking to promote this, this market. Overall, the, the uh, spotlight in the report that we had on Vietnam was looking to highlight some of the um, positive uh, regulatory changes and, and uh, laws that they're looking to implement there in order to encourage more of this type of activity.
0: Get down from the country level and the overall market level to, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of the project developer. So I'm a project developer in Southeast Asia and you have other reports which help people understand what are the registries. So how do I go about it? What registry should I sort of go? You know, what's the process I should follow?
1: Sure. Yeah. Registries are the tools that the certification bodies use in order to uh, showcase the various projects that they've approved or that are going through the approval process at the moment. And then once those are uh, registered, the, the registries are also the place where credits are issued and you can see or anyone can see really how many credits have been issued, who, how many credits have been retired, uh, which companies or individuals or groups are retiring the credits, Uh, so on and so forth. So there are a few big registries. Some of the biggest ones include uh, the gold standard. There is uh, the uh, VERA, which is um, also known as BCS. There is American Carbon Registry and uh, also Climate Action Reserve. Those are primarily focused on uh, the United States. So if you're not based there, you know, I would say those are much uh, less relevant to you. Uh, but I would say that at the moment, really the biggest registry uh, and the one that's seeing, I think the most activity is VERA. So they've registered really the most forestry projects outside of the two American ones. So the registries, they're, they're sort of like the uh, gatekeepers in the space. So in order for a project to be issued credits. Uh, They need to apply for these uh, certification bodies or standards bodies. They need to be the certification bodies have a list of auditors that they've screened and they screen on a regular basis. And as a project developer, you have to speak with one of these auditors, invite them uh, to review the project, review the documents you've put together, so on and so forth. And once that auditor is satisfied that your project meets the various criteria that each, uh, each project must meet, then uh, the standards body will list your project on their registry. And that's when you can start to uh, issue credits th- through the registry and uh, transfer credits to buyers, whether those be uh, companies that retire the credits right away or will be more like brokers who hold on to your credits uh, and try to sell them, uh, either on your behalf or we'll buy them from you and then sell them on to to their customers, uh, so on and so forth. The process does tend to take quite a long time. So really for forestry projects, I would say about a a year, two year and a half would be a fairly optimistic timeline to get registered. Again, this depends on the experience of the team, the familiarity with, uh, with the process. The verifiers or the auditors that they work with and the, the, the team's experience on that end. Uh, also, obviously, anything around actually setting up the project, getting investment, all of that, I mean, that will also take usually quite a bit of time. So it's not a quick process. And I think the market was designed with, with that in mind, because, of course, if a project are too easily certified and it's too easy to become a carbon offsetting project, then I think there's going to be more skepticism, even more so than now, around the quality of these projects. Of course, if if the process takes too long, then that means there's going to be much less activity uh, and less investment and less incentive for projects to be registered.
0: And I understand this issue about maintaining quality versus uh, not frustrating the developers, but uh, what it really boils down to is that the developer or the consortium of developers uh, that you talked about Earlier, will have to refinance themselves for a year and a half as they build the project before they see the uh, certainty of some revenue. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Year, year and a half, uh, sometimes even longer, that projects have between when they apply to register versus when they're actually able to issue the credits. Yeah, so it's it's yeah. not an easy it's not an easy process, and um, I think a lot of. Uh, Investors are also quite hesitant to, or have been quite hesitant to support projects knowing that there's going to be this time delay.
0: Right. You talked about the issue of credits, who buys these credits, you know, how do the, you know, transactions up is that obviously it's not a exchange, right? So maybe you can explain to us that.
1: Sure. Once the credits are issued, a project has various options in terms of who to sell the credits to. Now until I'd say about a year, year and a half ago, when the market really started to take off in a big way, most of the buyers for the credits would be essentially intermediaries and brokers who would buy low and sell high to companies that are looking to offset their emissions. Now, you know, those intermediaries, their place in the market was really to guarantee that there was demand for credits. And even though they were, as I said, sort of I think making a fairly healthy margin on the transactions, um, at the very least, you know, that ensured that there's going to be demand for for credits. Now, more recently, uh, I think you're seeing more and more firms going directly to the projects and saying, look, we need to purchase 100,000 tons of carbon a year uh, for the next 10 years on an annual basis. Can you essentially Uh, guarantee that supply for me. So more and more, we're seeing, I think, companies uh, and say, okay, well, we have such a large demand that we should actually essentially start being our own, well, sourcing the credits ourselves rather than going through the brokers. But the other option at the moment is, um, so you mentioned there the exchanges, and it's true that they're it's still a bit of a nascent part of the industry. But uh, again, I'd say over the past year or so, there have been increased activity on exchanges. So um, again, whether that's the project itself listing on the exchange and saying, okay, well, we have a million tons of carbon that's been issued over the past year. Uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to go directly to the exchange and try to sell the credits there. Or whether that's uh, you know a broker that's purchased, let's say, a million tons of carbon and they can you know, obviously list on the exchange as well that's becoming much more common. And in fact, there is actually an exchange and it's based out in, in Singapore that's launching later this year. And they're looking specifically at nature-based solution projects. And um, it's going to be all over the, the world, but you know, I would say given their proximity to Southeast Asia, I think there's probably going to be quite a lot of projects from, uh, from that region on there as well. So uh, they're becoming a much bigger part of this of this picture but ultimately the people that you know when you look at brokers when you look at exchanges most of the time these are just ways to get credits to companies that are looking to to purchase these uh, these offsets so again there's there's been an increase increased uh demand from firms that at least they say they want to do the right thing and they want to support green projects and they want to make sure that they're seen as a sustainable brand so they're the ones who are ultimately driving the demand um, and things like, you know, I think a couple of years ago, Warren Buffett put out one of his annual investment um, or shareholder shareholder uh, letters saying that this is something that companies need to do. And you saw an uptick of activity following that. Uh, Microsoft's been good in uh, promoting this, this market and, uh, you know, some quite innovative projects in, in carbon uh, markets, Stripe, folks like that. Essentially, more more and more companies are looking at this as a way to uh, mitigate their carbon carbon footprint, and that's that's really where the the demand is coming
0: from. From large global corporates who are you know sort of becoming conscious of their environmental footprint and becoming serious about their net zero type pledges, uh, this is all very interesting. Uh, let's talk about carbon prices, and you've obviously. Uh, been uh, tracking that a a lot. You also have an Allied Offsets database, right? With with the aim to improve the market, at least make more market information available. Tell us a little bit about the Allied Offsets database project.
1: Sure, yeah. So we put together the Allied Offsets database, well, really about a year ago. So it's still fairly recent. But uh, yeah, what we're looking to do is the very beginning answer basic questions like, how many projects are there around the world? Where are they? How many tons of carbon are they issuing? All of that, which at the time, a lot of this data did exist uh, in the market, but it was kind of spread out all over the place. And we wanted to be the place that uh, aggregated it and made it as simple as possible for people to understand what's going on. Then eventually, we started to also incorporate more data on the retirements. So the credits that are issued, um, who purchases them, who retires them, so on and so forth. And then more and more, we started speaking with projects themselves and uh, brokers and, and and also started to collect essentially sample prices that feed into our pricing model, which tries to come up with a, a best estimate for a best guess estimate for uh, the price for a ton of carbon for really any given. Project from any registry um, broken down by things like the year that the uh, credit was issued, the volume of the transaction, so on and so forth. So, we're looking to put the best data forward and make it so that anyone who's looking to participate in this market, either as an investor, a project developer, a buyer, a researcher, you know, they have a place where they can go and get everything they need in one place.
0: Right. And- I was looking at the data as well. And one of the things that surprised me and will surprise, I guess, uh, anybody like me, is that the price of carbon varied according to the project, uh, the country, and so on and so forth. Could you just explain you know, how that happens?
1: Sure, yeah. The, um, generally, what's driving the prices is- In the voluntary market is, and, you know, thinking back to who is the ultimate buyer of these credits, right? So these tend to be companies that want to signal to consumers that they're sustainable, they're doing the right thing. They want to be basically have a positive impact on the climate rather than a negative impact. So they often use their carbon offsetting initiatives as part of their marketing efforts. So they often like to offset with projects that are quite visually appealing and have not just the carbon component, so not just an environmental component, but also contribute to the SDGs, so the Sustainable Development Goals, um, as a way to signal that they're not just having a positive impact on the environment, but they're also helping to do things like provide sustainable, well-paying jobs to uh, local communities, help you know, with things like education efforts in the region or at least within the project area or things like healthcare and uh, improved healthcare and things like that. So that's really been one of the key things that drives the price. And then, you know, other types of projects that tend to be quite popular are things like clean cookstoves, sustainable cookstoves. As I mentioned, you know, of course there, it's a fairly easy way to say, well, this isn't just helping to keep trees on the ground because people no longer need to collect firewood, but it's also having a positive health impact because uh, these cookstoves burn uh, cleaner. So there are fewer respiratory problems uh, for, for their users. So those things tend to drive the price of, of carbon credits. I think it's something that we're going to see change uh, in the next couple of years as more and more people understand that while it's great to have the co-benefits and it's great to have the positive impact on the SDGs and things like that. Carbon offsets should be primarily about the carbon with everything else being a pretty, you know, an important consideration, but something that isn't really driving purchasing decisions. Whereas I think at the moment, unfortunately, most of the purchasing decisions are driven by how marketable a project is based on things like SDGs, which sometimes correlate with high quality of projects from a carbon perspective, but sometimes they, they don't. But um, I think it's a, it's a question that a lot of folks are looking into. I mean, here in the UK, we've got the, uh, well, it's a global, global initiative, really, but it's, it was uh, started by Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England. So he's got this uh, task for scaling the voluntary carbon markets. And uh, certainly quality is one thing that they're looking at. And whether one defines quality as something that's essentially just looking at the carbon component. And the environmental component or whether it's carbon or whether it's quality that's looking at something like what are the additional co-benefits you know those are difficult questions and a lot of people are thinking about them and if you ask 10 people what their opinion is you'll get 10 different answers so um it's it's certainly not an easy problem to to get around
0: right i have got one answer and you talked about things that are worrying you about this market so is this uh, sort of variety of ways of arriving at a price? Is, is that worrying you about the market or is there something else as well?
1: I think going into COP, there are also things that are a bit unclear around uh, what's going to happen with um, you know the rules around carbon credits and now that more countries are, every country now has to have emission reduction goals. And for example, a, a country like Indonesia, no, I'm not saying ju- just take them as an example, you know, If they have large forests that are being protected and those credits are being sold on voluntary uh, carbon markets, they might say, okay, well, we need a million tons of carbon to meet our national goal for this year. Private project has a million tons of carbon. Some investors are a bit concerned that, you know, what's to prevent that country and that government from saying, look, we're just going to essentially nationalize this Uh, This project, or we're going to make it very difficult for that project to sell credits outside of the country. There's a little bit of uncertainty around that. I don't think it's going to be any sort of extreme solution, but there could be things like governments needing to approve purchases over a certain size, or um, in some cases, carbon credits need to stay within within a country. Uh, These are all concerns that I've heard from from some project developers. So we'll see what happens at at COP. Again, I, I don't expect there to be big changes in the regulation, given that the market's kind of growing and seeing quite a lot of interest. I would be surprised if, uh, if governments came together and looked to, to prevent that from, from continuing. But um, there's certainly a risk. We'll have a little bit more certainty after, after going to be good for, for project developers and also for uh, investors that are thinking about, you know, if I'm going to be putting money into this and locking away money for several years before I see any revenues come back in, these are certainly questions that they're thinking about as well.
0: This is very interesting, actually. I mean, the way you are describing it that is today the market is small but very global and but as the market expands, it could well become fragmented and you know I really like the you know, the risks that you put up of of the carbon from a one forest being almost nationalized for use in the in a country 's budget as opposed to a corporate budget uh, it's all you know it 's all possible I suppose in the next a uh, few years, you know, and then the other point that you made, I think, is also very interesting, which is that, uh, you know, if people don't have uh, faith in the buyer's ability or interest to buy genuine carbon offsets, then they would not have faith in those statements. I'm wondering the, on the other side of the equation, uh, what are your thoughts on developing larger numbers of good quality projects?
1: It's a good question. I think it's one of these things that um, the thing that has been preventing more projects from taking off and getting started and things like that uh, has just been lack of activity, which has meant low prices for for voluntary carbon credits. Now, as the activity is picking up, you know we're seeing more and more individuals and project developers uh, and potential project developers come to us and say, you know, we've got um, X number of tons of carbon that we think could be a great fit for voluntary carbon. How do we actually make this happen? And uh, I think that wouldn't have happened a few years ago when essentially the cost of going through the registration process, the cost of complying with some of these uh, methodologies may have even been higher than the, the revenues uh, that the project would get from selling their carbon credits, right? So now that the prices are going up, revenues for the projects are going up as well. Uh, So hopefully that will drive more and more activity in the space. In essence, not, you know, not every forest can be a carbon offsetting project uh, and a project does need to prove that there's a baseline of essentially doing nothing. And a project needs to prove that by becoming a carbon offsetting project, they're essentially going to do better than the baseline. There's that understanding as well, that if you buy a forest that was never really in danger. So something that's protected land, national park, for example, in theory, those tranches of land, you know, they, they wouldn't qualify to be a carbon offsetting project. To me, again, the key thing is, you know, prices going up, potential revenues going up, that's going to drive more, more, more and more activity. One word of caution is, you know, we've seen a lot of potential project developers come to us and say, you know, we have this land, we're doing X, Y, and Z with it. Can we get carbon credits for it? And oftentimes the answer is, well, no, or maybe you can, but uh, you only get a tiny fraction of what you think you're going to get, uh, which means it's probably not really worth it for you to become a carbon offsetting project. So project developers really need to think about how they fit into this, uh, into this market. And I do think there's a lot of potential for a lot more projects to, to come online over the next couple of years. If you look at some of these projections, that, for example, the, the task force for scaling the voluntary carbon markets that I mentioned earlier, this potentially becoming a $50 billion a year market uh, in the next 10 to 15 years. If that's going to happen, there's gonna be, be a lot more supply of credits. But you know whether that actually materializes or not, um, that goes back to some of the things that uh, I mentioned earlier around, ensuring that the quality stays high so that people actually trust the projects um, because, you know, really a few bad apples can can really spoil it for, for everyone else. But also making sure that, you know, the registries keep fairly high and time intensive processes in place to ensure that the carbon credits are actually, you know, genuine and the projects are doing what they're meant to be doing. At the same time, there's certainly pressure on registries to make the process more straightforward and make it easier to register so of course by reducing well making some of the hurdles less uh, difficult to get around that's going to incentivize more and more projects as well but you know i would say that's that's probably not a good thing in the long term for the market because um that's going to invite more you know not so great projects to come on so again the key thing is Prices going up, more activity, more demand. That's that's already having a big impact on on the supply, and we'll continue to monitor over the next you know, year, six months, how that translates to new projects coming onto the pipeline, sort of looking to apply to register on these um, with these various certification bodies.
0: Interesting. Maybe we can end the podcast by just talking a little bit about your organization and. Especially, I know you have uh, other offerings in Southeast Asia. So maybe talk a little bit about your organization and what your products and services are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been around for um, six, seven years now, something like that. You know, we've uh, we've worked with a number of various groups, from the likes of GIZ, World Bank, UNDP, etc. What we've done is really look to connect funders and investors and grant-making bodies, et cetera, uh, with entrepreneurs and with projects uh, across the world, really. We've looked quite in-depth at, th- at things like crowdfunding. So thinking about how do you mimic what's going on in places like the US and the UK when it comes to you know equity crowdfunding or peer-to-peer lending, uh, or even really donation-based crowdfunding and things like that. Is there a potential for that uh, across other markets? Uh, in some cases, absolutely. In some cases, it's, it's really taking off in a big way. In other cases, you know, less so for various reasons. So we, we think about what are the best ways for organizations to uh, potentially use crowdfunding and in order to finance their projects or in order to finance uh, companies. Uh, but also, uh, we look at things like uh, venture capital activity, impact investment activity uh, across, well, really across all emerging markets. And we'll look at things like well, in which countries is there perhaps saturation of, for example, tech focused venture capital firms? And in which places is there probably more of, of a need for those types of uh, investors? So, everything from uh, working with organizations to kind of think about that type of question at a macro scale. So regionally or in a given country, you know, what's the activity, uh, where, where's the money coming from, who's going to, uh, so on and so forth, but also on a more company focused level, uh, creating reports around, you know, what actually drives investors to make investment decisions in a given geography or in a given sector type. And it's all, that's how it all sort of ties
0: in together. And that's so important as well. Uh, thank you very much, Anton. It was wonderful having you here. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra.